So again, like I said, Psalm 78, verses 1 through 33. So would you hold on to that, though, but by way of introduction, I actually want you to turn to the New Testament. So would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? As you're turning there, it's interesting. It's come up a lot lately. I, I like to listen to different Christian podcasts and, and just kind of see what's going on. And the question comes up a lot among Christians is like, should we study the Old Testament? Right? Is we're New Covenant, one of the New Covenant, we're New Testament Christians. Um, for you, if you showed up today and you know that we're going through the Psalms, then you, you believe in studying the Old Testament. Um, and so it's important for us, though, to, to not only read the Old Testament, but to really study it, to dig into that. And, and Paul's going to give us a reason here, and it's going to tie into the message for today. And so would you look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10? We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Keep in mind that the church there in Corinth, this is a, a very Gentile region. It's kind of like the Las Vegas of the day. So he's writing to those individuals who are mostly Gentiles, telling them it's important that they understand the Old Testament. So he begins, verse 1 of chapter 10, says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So as you look at that, it should take you back to Exodus. That's what, that's what it should stir up in your mind is, oh, yeah, the exodus. Uh, God brought the, the Israelites under the leadership of Moses out of Egypt. And they went through the Red Sea, and they had manna every morning, and the, the water came out of the rock. And, and we're talking about this in, in my BSM class at school, and we're actually in the book of Numbers right now. And we just covered the part there in Numbers where Moses disobeys the Lord. He strikes the rock twice. And because of that, because he misrepresented God in that situation, he's not allowed to go into the promised land. We talk about that, and I, I took the students to this very passage and showed them about how that rock symbolically was Christ. And so it's interesting if you understand the story. You see, originally when they needed water, Moses was to strike the rock. And that was a picture of Christ being crucified, that he was struck once and life comes out of him. But after Christ is crucified, he's never to be struck again. And so when Moses strikes that rock twice, instead of responding to what God said, and God said, speak to the rock and water come out, he messed up that typology. And so it's interesting for us, the New Testament really gives us so much information, fulfills the Old Testament, and then we read the, the, new, the Old Testament with this new life, this excitement of seeing Christ there. So this is what Paul is pointing out here. Then he moves on in verse 5, and he says, but with most of them, and this is, this is perhaps the, the biggest understatement, and the whole Bible, he says, but with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. <laughs> Just so you understand what a, how much of an understatement that was of that generation of 20 and above who came out of the promised land two got to go into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. So I think it's safe to say, yeah, with most of them, he was not well pleased. And he says, if, now here's where it really um, comes home to us in verse 6. Now these things became our examples. Okay, you are a New Testament believer. So, so you're part of who Paul's writing to. He's not only writing to the Corinthians, but he's writing to you. He says they became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after the evil things as they also lusted. So in other words, we read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and, and all that. And we see what happened to the Israelites and we say, oh, look at the bad results of their disobedience. Look what happened when they lusted. Look what happened when they complained. Look what happened when they disobeyed. And we say, I need to do something different. 
I don't want to live that kind of life. I don't want to end up in that kind of situation. And in verse 7, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So speaking of the golden calf. And Exodus 32 says, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them were tempted and were destroyed by serpents. So it's the fiery serpents that were sent out. And Moses had the brazen altar. uh, I'm sorry, the brazen serpent that he lifted up. That if they would look to it by faith, they would be healed. Jesus referred to that in John chapter 3. So we see all these correlations, these things tying together. Verse 10, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then he says, now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so this this beautiful thing that we can read the Old Testament, we can read in the Old Covenant, and maybe not everything applies to us. We're not under the Levitical priesthood anymore or those things, but there's still examples or admonitions for us. And that word admonition means a warning or exhortation. You see, for us, you know, we we often say that, um, you know, it's best to learn by experience. We say that, but I would argue experience is an expensive teacher, (laughs) And so instead of learning by experience, why don't I, why don't you look to people who did things the wrong way and say, I'm not going to have that experience. I'm going to do something different. I don't want to live that way. And and so as we look at this, now as we turn back to Psalm 78, what we're going to see is the psalmist here, Asaph, is going to point out to those very same examples. He's going to talk to the people. He's going to write to the people. And he's saying, remember how they did things wrong. Let's do something different. For you and I, you know, as as New Covenant believers, we have incredible, incredible privileges. We have incredible examples that have gone before us for good and for bad. We can look at those and say, well, I want to model my life after the good. I want to avoid the bad. We don't have to get up and say, well, I'm going to start life anew. I'm going to just figure this all out for myself. I'm going to start with no idea of what I'm doing and just go for that. If you want to do that, read the philosophers. Over and over again, we see these secular philosophers. They're just like, let me start from zero. And we see how their life ends up in an absolute mess. For you and I, we've been given just incredible examples in the scriptures of what to do, what not to do, to help us as we seek to walk out this life in Christ. All right, so let's jump in now to Psalm 78. Again, I've entitled my message, Give Ear, and we'll see this right away why this is. But I want to give a little bit of introduction here in Psalm 78 um, by reading from one commentator who has this to say. He said, Psalm 78 is the longest of the historical psalms. Its, Its lesson is that history must not repeat itself. The people must never again be unbelieving. Okay, so that's a central premise. So the central premise here is the psalmist is writing to the Israelites in days past and and saying, uh, I'm sorry, is writing of the Israelites of days past and how they disobeyed and about how it didn't work out with them. This this same story is being played out every day on planet Earth. Every day on planet Earth, people are walking in disobedience, walking in unbelief, and their life is ending in failure. And so for you and I, we want to be different. Now, it's so fun teaching my seventh graders and on Thursday, we were going through that. Again, we were going through the fiery serpent and, and Moses making the, the, the bronze serpent and lifting it up and people who would look to it by faith. And we're talking about this. And, and one student raised his hand and he said, did they still have that serpent? 
Like, did they keep it? And I said, well, it kind of, it's funny that you should ask that because they actually kept it. And later on, they made it into an idol. They started worshiping it. And there was a spontaneous groan from my seventh grade class because they've been far enough through the Pentateuch now that they kind of have a flavor for the Israelites. And then one of my students said, I'm so tired of these guys. <laughs> and, and so I, I just love that. They understood, golly, guys, why are you doing that again and again? So for you and I to go to the Psalms and, and, and to go to the scriptures and to, to, to do more than to say, like, like that one student, I'm so tired of these guys, to say, how do I see myself here? Is this what I'm doing? Is this, is this kind of how I'm going? And if so, if I'm going in that negative direction, if I'm going to that place of complaining and disobedience and unbelief, let me do something different. Let me go in a different direction. All right, let's move on to verse 1 now. And we start off with the, the title of my message there, Give Ear. So give ear. Immediately, that's what the psalmist is saying. And what that means is listen, pay attention. And it's important to understand that even as he exhorts his listeners to give ear, that there has to be that willingness on the part of the hearer. Right? I can't, if you come here today just to show up or to, to eat, you know, Shirley's delectable desserts. And you, if that's why you came. If you choose to not listen to a word I have to say, I can't do anything about that. I've been parenting for long enough to realize I can't make anybody listen. And, and so that's, I've, that's how it is with pastoring or anything. You guys know that. If a person chooses not to listen, they won't. And, and so here's what the psalmist is doing, Asaph is doing, is he's saying, hey, w would you be willing to listen? Would you give ear to me? And so the audience must contribute this. The speaker cannot make this happen. And that gives you, God has given us incredible power. God has given us incredible power to speak. God has given us incredible power to listen. But there has to be a willingness, a desire to do that. So that's what Asaph is asking for. And then notice how he's, he, he refers to them. He says, oh, my people. So the speaker is connected to the audience. He's one of them. He's, he says, you're my people. And, and so I think this is really interesting. This is a different dynamic. Because if you read through the scriptures, there are often times where angels give a message. Right? Where angels will speak to people. But an angel can never say, oh, my people, because they're a different type. Angels and human beings are different. But when a person says, hey, oh, my people, a, a human, that's something different. And that's what makes it so powerful that Jesus became a man, that, that, that the Logos took on humanity because now he can say, oh, my people, because he's one of us. So it's exciting to think about. And it continues on. Um, it says, oh, my people, incline your ears. Oh, I'm sorry. Give ear, oh, my people, to my law. Now, we hear that word, law. We don't like it because we're lawless, right? We, we, we don't want to hear law. But what this word law really means, it means direction. It means instruction. So he's saying, hey, listen to my instruction. Give ear to my instruction. And, and what that is telling us with this, it's just not mere information. Okay, it's not mere information. And it's something to do something with. It's, it's, it's something to take to heart, something to live out. You see, information stops at knowing. You and I can spend a lot of time on the Internet getting a bunch of information, but it's not direction or instruction, right? It's just meaningless. Like it's, for, for most of what guys do when they spend time researching sports, it's just information. It's not direction or instruction. It's not anything really helpful. And, and so, but, but direction and instruction it continues, it moves past knowing now into doing, to do something with. 
And so that's so vital that we study the word of God not for information merely, but for instruction and direction, that we're going to do something with it. There's an online class that I've been taking, the Theology One class. I love it because my professor, he refers to himself as an applied theologian. And what he means by that is he's studying the word of God so he can do something with it. And that's really helpful for us. That's what we want to be. I would encourage each of us to be applied theologians, to be people who I want to study the word of God so I can walk this out. And this is just what James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, when we just have information in the word of God, but we don't live it out, then we're actually self-deceptive. We're not doing what we are called to do. We want to move past just merely hearing to doing. Okay, now let's move on now. In there in verse 1, he says, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Now, as I thought about this, inclining your ears to the words of my mouth, you know, immediately came to mind, what are my dogs? I have have two dogs. Neither are intelligent. (laughs) And one of the dogs, though, she, she, she loves to go in and out and in and out and in and out. And she's outside and at the door, then she, as she hears something going on in conversation, you'll see her outside the door and her ears will be up and she'll be tilting her head. And she's trying to listen to what's going on. And I always just think it's funny because she has no idea what these words mean. But she's trying, she's inclining her he- ears to try to hear what's going in. That's what I think of here. Or maybe if you're of a certain age, you remember the days of the, the TV antenna? You know, back in those days, and you would try to move them, you would incline them, you would twist them around, you'd put foil on top, you'd hold on to them, whatever, to try to receive reception. Or maybe you've, you've been on a, a, like on, a, on a retreat or a camping trip, and you're trying to get self-service, and you're putting your phone different places and trying to figure out where you can get service. That's kind of what we have here. And so you think about this, this idea of inclining your ears to the words of my mouth It's this idea of I need to adjust myself so that I might receive the message. Does that make sense? So for you and I, like I want to work on being a better communicator. I know I do a lot of things poorly. I know I talk too fast. I understand these things. I'm trying to work on that. But also for us as listeners is like are we adjusting ourselves so that we might receive the message? Or are we saying, well, I I can't hear the message from this person or that person or that person or that person or that person. If there's no one on planet Earth that you can receive a message from, you're probably the problem. (laughs) Probably not everybody else's problem. So it's this idea of humility. I want to adjust myself to be able to receive the message, realizing that every messenger I ever come into contact with is going to be flawed. Every messenger is going to have his own faults. And so, but I'm going to adjust. Verse 2 He says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Okay, so this word parable here, it's a familiar word for us in the New Testament, and it really means a comparison. That's what a parable is. It's a saying which uses one realm of life to illuminate another. Jesus often did that, right? The kingdom of heaven is like, you know, a guy who had this field, or it's like this. He's comparing it to something we we know to something we don't. Now, what's interesting about this verse is it actually shows up in the New Testament. So would you turn to Matthew chapter 13 for just a moment? Matthew 13. It's one of my favorite things to do is correlation, tie the different scriptures together. So Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to look at verses 34 and 35. So 
So we read here, Matthew 13, 34 and 35. It says, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. Okay, so this is when Jesus was given his different parables, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and the parable of the soils, and that sort of thing. And it says, and without a parable, he did not speak to them. Notice that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. That's our verse. Very interesting. That for what us, for us, as we just, you know, read it and say, okay, well, this is a, a psalm that's giving us instruction direction. Matthew actually says that, that was actually a prophecy. Now, Asaph may have not known it was a prophecy when he wrote it, but it's fulfilled in Jesus. It's speaking about Jesus. So I think that's just something interesting to, for us to, to consider and to think about. All right, let's move back to Psalm 78 now. But as we're doing that, I would encourage you to really study the Bible for these connections. Study the Bible for these correlations. See how these things fit together. You know, one of the things I like to do with my students at school is I, I love to, to show them that from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's all one book. It's all tied together. And I love to show them about how in Genesis chapter 3, we have the serpent. You know, and, and they know, because most of them are raised in Christian homes, they know it's the devil. But I say, well, how do you know it's the devil? How can you prove to me that that's actually the devil? It doesn't say that he's the devil there. And they get a little nervous. And then I have them turn to Revelation chapter 12. Because in Revelation 12, we have this list of the devil's names, and he's called the serpent of old. Well, there you have it. You know that that's a devil in Genesis 3 because we're told there in Revelation 12. So it's important for us to do that. And it's going to grow our confidence in the word of God. All right, let's move on to verse 3 here of Psalm 78. He says, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Okay, so... Asaph is saying, we've received this knowledge from those who came before. The, the, those who came before, the generations before, we received that knowledge. And do you know what? That takes humility. It takes humility to learn from those who have gone before, to receive that wisdom. And, and so, you know, so often, you know, a new generation will rise up and a certain segment of that generation will just go off the deep end. Because they refuse to receive the wisdom from those who have gone before. They refuse to, to receive that knowledge. And probably you and I had a time in life when we did that. You and I had a time in life in maybe late teens and early 20s. And we're just like, you know what? Anyone over 40 doesn't know anything. And we just kind of went off and did our things. And then we got a little older and we realized, I wish I had listened to those people. So it's important for us to understand that. And to, to be able to gain that wisdom, to, to humble ourselves, not to try to figure it out all on our own. I, I love what we read in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. And then you will find rest for your souls. So I love that. That we're to ask for those old paths, the good way. We're to look at the lives of those who have gone before, those who have finished well, and say, what were the keys? What did they do? What was their direction? What were they, how did they live their lives? And then, and then we're to not only find out what that good way is, but then to walk it out, to actually live it out. And then I, I love that last part of Jeremiah 6, 16. It says, and you'll find rest for your souls. You'll find rest for your souls. Now, I didn't put the bad news of this verse in here. But basically, what we read in Jeremiah is the people refused. And they said, we will not walk in it. We're not going to do what's gone before. That's old. That's dead. Burn that. Instead, let's do something new. And we see how it, how it ended. 
that the people of Judah, who Jeremiah was, was speaking to, prophesying to, trying to warn, they go into Babylonian captivity. They, they get taken out of the land. They get killed. They get enslaved because of their disobedience to their God. Moving on to verse 4. It says, We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generations to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Now, it's interesting. So, so the immediate context, and we understand this, is you know, godly parents are to share the truth of the Lord with their kids. But, but I think it's interesting that in verse 4 it says, we will not hide them from their children, which makes me think about not only telling your children, but your grandchildren. I, I believe that phrase, their children, means to you know, your children's children, that you'd be willing to pour into their lives as well. And so we look at something like verse 4, and immediately what we want to think about too is children's church, right? Well, why do we have children's church? You know, why do we ha- separate out the kids? Why don't we just have everybody in here? Well, because for the most part, children are not going to be able to follow how I teach. And so they need to be taught on their level. They need to be taught these truths. They need to get that foundation. And then along the way, then they can be able to take in these deeper truths, these these greater truths. And, And so it's important for us that we really focus on pouring the truth into children. Okay, and so, so for more on this, would you turn to Deuteronomy for just a so, second? So let's turn left in your Bibles for a bit to Deuteronomy, first, I'm sorry, fifth book of your Old Testament. And we're going to see Deuteronomy chapter 6. I bet it's a familiar passage to many of us. And we're going to see about how we're to share the truth of the Lord with children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, looking at verses 6 through 9. Now, as you're turning there, Deuteronomy, it's Deuteronomos, it means second law. Uh, Moses is, is basically giving Deuteronomy to that generation who's going to go into the promised land. That original generation has died out. The new generation is going in. Um, Moses is, is, is about to die, and so he's going to share this truth with them before they go into the promised land. So Deuteronomy 6, starting there in verse 6, he says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And I love this. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk in the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, so basically what Moses is saying is any time is a good time to share truth with your children. Any time you're doing. You know, you're, you're taking out the trash with them or you're, you're doing this or you're doing that. And you're lying down, you're rising up. It, it's good to share that truth. Now, it doesn't have to be every time, well, we're going to have a formal Bible study, kids. I'm not going to do that. It, it's, you can have those daily devotionals or whatever, weekly devotionals or family devotionals, however you want to do it in your family. You can do those things. But also just needs to be the overflow of your life, that you share truth with your kids. You share what you believe with your kids and how you came to faith and all those things. Share those things with your children. And I, and I love that. You shall bind them a sign on your hand and frontlets between your eyes. And I know some have taken these literally and, you know, phylacteries and all that kind of stuff. I, I really take it to mean is whatever I do with my hands should be governed by the word of God. What I think in my thoughts should be governed by the word of God, and, and my home should be governed by the word of God. That's how I take this to mean. 
And, and so I love this because Paul also talked about this in 2 Timothy. And I'll just read it for you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul says, I've received these things. I've passed them on to you. You pass them on to others who can pass them on to others. And so you think about it. That's why we're here today is because Paul passed that on. Other godly people passed that on. They passed it on. They passed it on. They passed it on all the way to us right here. So we don't want to stop that. We don't want to be the ones who, you know, break that, that chain. We want to continue passing that on to the next people. Wonderful, wonderful truths. All right, let's turn back to Psalm 78, if you would. We'll continue on now. But before we do, the next verse, I want to add one more thing related to this passing on. You can't pass on what you don't possess. You can't pass on what you don't possess. So the key for us is I got to possess that. I got to possess that. I got to pursue wisdom and knowledge and understanding because as you get wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, now you can pass it on. It, it can be the overflow out of your life. And so if you want to pass it on, possess it first. All right, verses five and six. It says, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. Okay, and so um, again, this is what we've been just covering, but it's, it's this generation's passing the truth on. Generations passing the truth on, passing the truth on, passing the truth on. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, I mean, we're going to have to be in relationship with family members, right? Want to be stay in relationship with family members? And I know that can be challenging, right? Because you know, you know why families are challenging? Because they're made up of sinners. <laughs> Same reason church fellowship can be challenging. Same thing work can be challenging. Is because everywhere we go, sinners are around us. And everywhere we go, we take an extra sinner with us, us. And so it's going to be a challenge, but stay connected. Keep on working on that. And, and so pass that on to those generations, and it has to be a priority, something that we want to do. We're intense about, or, um, intentional about it. All right, verse 7. As we look at verse 7, we see kind of a threefold purpose here that he gives in verse 7 of why we want to pass it on. Notice that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So if you study the scripture, you, tell it, you see that God gives us a why for things. God doesn't just say do it. He gives you a why. Here's why. And so here's why we should keep passing this on. And this is obviously open to anyone. You know, if you don't have children, you can't say, well, I get a pass now. It's, no, there's going to be people of influence in your life. There's people that you can share truth with. So uh, the threefold purpose, I want to give you purpose number one is so that they may set their hope in God. So set their hope in God. And, and so that's so vital. Because there's really only two options. I'm either going to hope in God or I'm going to hope in something that's not God. Man can't live without hope. We've got to hope in something. So either hope in God or hope in something else. And so it's a key, you know, you see every advertisement is trying to get us to hope in something else. Hope in this new phone. Hope in this new car. Hope in this new relationship. Hope in this new food. Hope in this new diet. Hope in this thing. There's all these things that are trying to give us hope because they want our money. They want our hearts. But what we need to realize is like the only true hope we have in this life is God. He's our only hope. Obi-Wan Kenobi is not our only hope. God is our only hope. 
only he will not disappoint. And, and so uh, we're, we're told this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the first of the Ten Commandments. God says this, you shall have no other gods before me. So no hope other than God, no God to go after, no, no one thinking like, well, this, this is going to solve my problems, or this is going to give me this. No, 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 only God. And then Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy 1, 1. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, he calls himself Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. I love that. The Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. So God alone is our hope. And then please hear me, God alone can bring hope. God's the only one who can give hope to our lives because he's the only one that stays. If you think about life, life is so changeable. You know, you know, people can die and things can happen. And, you know, you can lose your job or you can lose your home. You can lose all these things. There is nothing in this life that we're around that, that is solid except for God. God is the only foundation. He's the only rock. And, and so if we put our hope in anything other than God, we're going to be ultimately disappointed. We're going to always be fearful and worried. But, but God is solid. God is big. God is eternal. God is our hope. Let's see the second thing here in verse 7. The second purpose, notice, is so they will not forget the works of God. They'll not forget the works of God. So the works of God are to be remembered. The God of works are to be remembered. And so how do we remember the works of God? By going over them, going over them, talking over them. You know, so let, let's see, the, when this, the current seniors were seventh graders, so I guess that would be for now, for six straight years, I have taught BSN. So for six straight years, I've either had either two sections or three sections where I have gone through Genesis to Deuteronomy. And so some days I go in there and I'm like, again, <laughs> this is a lot that I'm going through. But I've gone through that over and over again. And so it's, it's really become intertwined into my soul. It's become a part of who I am. And so it's wonderful to continue to remember those works of God. And, and so we want people to remember them. We want children to remember them. And then third thing we see here in verse 7 is so they may keep his commandments to teach them to obey the Lord. Why do we want people to obey the Lord? It's because that gives glory to God, but it's also the best thing for them. See, there's this misconception that if people obey God, then that's a life of bondage. You know, that, that, that's a sorry life. The best possible life is a, the life of obedience to God. No, live, no one lived a better, more fruitful life than the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived the best life in human history, and he said, I always do those things that please the Father. So we want to share truth with people, not because we're like, we want to control and manipulate them. We want them to obey the Lord because that's the best thing for them, because that's where life is found. Verse 8, we read, and may not be like their fathers. So, they're not, so they won't be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So Asaph wants something different for his people. He doesn't want them to be like those of old, those who were in the wilderness. He wants them to be different. He doesn't want them to be rebels. And, and so remember, again, how can this all happen? Submission to the word of God is the key. Right? And submission, you know, obviously people like to use it if it's like, you know, mixed martial arts and submission holds and all that kind of stuff. And that's one thing. But just the word submission, people hate and our culture hates it more than ever. 
You know, because everybody wants to be their own boss. Everybody wants to, to, to make their own way and to identify however they want to. They, they want to, I, I don't want to submit. You cannot, I cannot be a faithful believer if I'm unwilling to submit. There's no other way. Submit. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. So if we call Jesus, Lord Jesus, and we should, then we should obey him. There, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Jesus would say to us directly, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't obey? Like, if, if he's, Because Jesus will let us disobey, right? He gives us a freedom to disobey, but he says, if you're going to do that, don't call me Lord. If you're going to call me Lord, then obey. And, and then I love this in Psalm 119, verse 9, it says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. I love that. So, so how do we learn to obey? By taking heed according to God's word. Just obey the word of God. Now, why does it say young man? How can a young man? Well, probably because there's nothing more unclean than a young man. Right? So there's this idea that if the word of God can clean, cleanse a young man, it can cleanse anybody. <laughs> Right? It doesn't say, how can an old granny cleanse her way, you know, or that kind of stuff, or how does that real nice, you know, the lady who always makes you cookies, how can, no, it doesn't say that. It says, how can a young man cleanse his way? The person who's at the, you know, the, 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 the height of the emotions and the hormones and all of these things, it says, by taking heed according to your word. So if the word of God can cleanse a young man, it can cleanse anybody. And so for you and I, to be people and say, well, man, there's a lot of messes inside. There's all that kind of things. Well, what needs to happen? I need to submit to the word of God and to the power of the Holy Spirit and, and seek to have him change me, have him take me in a different direction. Let's move on to verses 9 through 11 now. It says, the children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Now, if you're familiar, Ephraim um, was, was a tribe in Israel. Um, Joseph didn't become a tribe, you know, just the tribe of Joseph. It was actually Ephraim and Manasseh. He actually became two tribes. And so Ephraim, if you study the Old Testament, um, they were just a, a picture of spiritual rebellion. Ephraim was, uh, they, were, they really led the Israel into idolatry and other things. And, and so what happened with, with Ephraim is their spiritual rebellion led to physical rebellion. And that's how it always is. You see, who we are spiritually is manifested physically. What we really believe, what we really think comes out in what we do. It comes out in our actions. And so you remember Peter, right, in the night before Jesus' crucifixion? And he said, Lord, I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to die with you. These other scumbags, they're going to take off, but not me. You can, you can count on Pete, right? That was his attitude. And Jesus just said in a real nice way, hey, you know, Satan's asked to sift you as wheat. And after you've gone off, you can come back to me after that. He knew. And so no matter what Peter thought about himself, what he said about himself, he was spiritually prideful. He was trusting in himself. So what happened? It manifested itself physically. He betrayed the Lord three times. And, and so we have to understand that. When we start to see these things manifest in our lives physically, we have to avoid what politicians always do and they say, well, that I'm, you know, I know I got caught in this thing, but I'm not that kind of person. You are that kind of person. We each are. Whatever we do physically reveals who we are spiritually. So if we don't like what we're seeing physically from ourselves, 
that we need, we need to really start seeing what's going on spiritually, what's happening. Where's my heart? What am I into? What am I about? How am I spending my time? What am I focusing on? And really seek to change that. Because out of uh, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, but it's also out of the abundance of the heart that the limbs act. Okay? And so what we need to do is, is seek God to, to cleanse us, to change us, to reorient us. It's going to take some retraining. Um, but we have to, to, to kind of get rid of this dichotomy of saying, well, what I'm doing with my body is not really who I am. No, it is. It is. And so let's, let's get that heart changed so he might behave differently. All right, let's look at verses 12 through 16 now. It says, marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He, defied, he divided the sea and caused them to pass through. Okay, so that's the Red Sea. He made the water stand up like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with the cloud and all the night with the, the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness. He gave them drink in the abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. So again, these are some things that we talked about from 1 Corinthians, but it's good to remind ourselves, oh yeah, the Red Sea crossing. Yeah, God did that. And then there was a, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. That's how he led them in the wilderness. Whenever the, uh, God manifested himself in that way and he, and he stopped, then it was time to camp. And then when the cloud or the pillar of fire moved, then it was time to go. And then also he gave them water from the rocks. So, th so these are all things that should be really in the forefront of our minds as believers because they help us to understand how God works through all the rest, about how God provides, God delivers, God does what it takes to get his people to where he wants them to go. Verses 17 through 20 says, but they sinned even more against him. By rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, God, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Okay. So the people tempted God because they were dissatisfied. They weren't happy. You know, God, every morning, six days a week, he provided manna. You know, on, on Friday, he provided twice as much so they could have some for Saturday. And supernaturally, he made it so that it wouldn't decompose and so they could still eat it. But they got tired of it. In fact, if you read the scriptures, it says, they say, what do we want to do with this worthless bread? So every morning, there was a miraculous substance, food, for them to eat. That would sustain them through the day, and they got tired of it. I know God's providing this every day, but it's worthless to me. It's no good. That was their attitude. That was their heart. They always wanted something more. And here's the problem. It's the same problem for you and I have. It's entitlement. Right? We have an entitlement problem. It's amazing for us. We just get used to things, and then we become entitled and think we deserve something more. I just, I can't believe this. I can't believe, what am I doing walking around with an iPhone 10? <laughs> what year is this? Right? We have this kind of entitlement mentality. And so Paul sets the record straight for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And then he lays it out. And you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It's, this is to take to heart. Right? If, if 
I saw your keys sitting on your Bible, and you're busy fellowshipping, and I just thought, you know what? I'd really love to have that car. And I took your keys and started driving around, and I thought, well, let's see if we can street race, you know? And I'm doing all of these things. You would be rightly angry with me. I would be in the wrong. I would need to go to jail. Why? Because that car does not belong to me. But here's the key. Paul says, guess what? When you use your body for whatever you want to use it for, you're doing the same thing. Because your body doesn't belong to you. It's, you are basically, and this is humbling for us to think about, especially the age in which we live in and all the stuff related to the body that we're talking about. God is telling us through, through Paul that we are merely stewards of our bodies. We don't own it. We're managers. We're temporary managers that, that God has bought our bodies. God has bought our souls. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We're, we're the temple of, of God. And so we need to view our lives as a stewardship. It doesn't belong to us. It's not about us. I, I get, I get the, you know, the, the privilege of living a life that can be pleasing to God, but my body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. And so now I'm going to use it for whatever is good for him, whatever shows love toward him and love toward others. And that's amazing. But, but think about with all the strife on planet Earth, if everybody woke up tomorrow and said, you know what, my body's not my own. It, it, it's not my body, my choice. What it is is I'm going to use my body for however many days I have left to glorify God, to honor him, to love others. And what happens as we put that together with what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6, where he says godliness with contentment is great gain. So now we let go of the entitlement. I'm merely a steward of my body, and I'm going to be content with whatever God gives me because if I can live godly and be content with what I have, then that's great gain. Wonderful, wonderful truths that actually could reset the structure of human society if people would obey it. But people say, no, we're going to figure it out ourselves. And it's just like the book of Judges. You know, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it becomes a huge dumpster fire. Let's look at verses 21 through 25 now. It says, therefore, the Lord, sorry, therefore, the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also up against Israel because they did not believe in God nor trust in his salvation. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. It had rained down manna on them to eat. He had given them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. So, so it's this idea or this, this picture, this truth that God had provided all the stuff for the people. The people complained about it. They were bitter about it. They didn't like it. And so it angered God. So, so hear me when I say this, that doubting God angers him. There's no way around it. And, and so I mean, I, as I look at that, I'm convicted because I've lived a life of unfaithfulness and often doubting him and mistrusting him, and it angers him. And we understand that, right? We understand that when people doubt our character, we know we're doing the right thing. They doubt us. It's frustrating, and we're just fallen. But God, God is perfect. And so doubting him angers him because it questions his character. The triune God is the only being in the universe 
right, that has this perfect character that, that's, that's rooted in himself. We now, you can say the angels that, that um, never fell, they have that same character, but, but theirs is given to them by God. It's not, they don't own it themselves. So, so God's character is such that we should trust him. And, and so, um, you know, the, and especially for the Israelites, all that they had seen, Right? They had seen so many things. They had seen the parting of the sea. They had seen water from the rock. They would seen the pillar of, of cloud, the pillar of fire. They saw all of these things, and they still doubted. And it reminds me of the people of Jesus you know, during Jesus' ministry. They saw all of these things, and yet they doubted him. And, and so for you and I, I think it would be good for us to take some time, you know, just take a moment sometime, and just think about the goodness that God has given you, the things he's done, the people in your life. The, the just things you've experienced with him and, and just be thankful for that. And, and I think it's the more we focus on who God is and what he's done, it's going to um, increase our trust in him and in his character. All right, verses 26 through 28 says, He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in, in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas. So he, and he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around in their dwellings. And so God brought quail for them to eat, and you can read about that. Again, I believe it's in the book of, it's in the book of Numbers. I get confused, but it's there in the, in the Pentateuch. Um, verses 29 through 31 says, So they all ate, and they were well filled, and he gave them their own, and they were not deprived of their craving. And their, when their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck them down, the choice men of Israel. And so you, know, you can read about that on your own, but it's, it's a really horrific thing. They, they really wanted meat, and they cried out for meat, and we had it so good in Egypt and all that kind of stuff. And so God says, all right, I'm going to give you meat. I'm going to give you all this quail. He brings all this quail in, and the people just basically gorge themselves. They just kind of lose their mind, and it's just this horrific you know, eating of all this quail, so God actually passes judgment on them, and they die in the midst of eating all this. It's a really horrible thing, um, and so it's like this overindulgence and this judgment here, and, and it really reminds me of Romans chapter 1 of God giving them over, right? And so why does this happen, though? Why is it that as we continue to chase after things in this life, why are we never satisfied? It's because only God fulfills, right? The pleasures of this life um, it's called, they're called passing pleasures. They're, they're pleasurable for a season, but they don't last because it's like drinking salt water. You know, giving in to sin is like drinking salt water. You, you know, you drink it and you just become thirstier and you become thirstier and you become thirstier. And that's what happened here. And so for us, what, what's the key to this? Not being like the Israelites is to be content. If God gives you, you know, the equivalent of manna every day, just be thankful for the manna. Just be thankful for that. You know, just be thankful for those things and, and trust that the Lord will, will give you what you need in the timing he, he has. All right, verse 32 says, In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. So in spite of all the judgments, in spite of all the manifest miraculous provision, the people still obeyed. And so this is, please, please hear me. If you hear nothing else today, please hear me. Even miracles will not move the rebellious heart. Even miracles will not remove the rebellious heart. I would venture to say no one in human history saw more miracles than that generation who saw the plagues in Egypt, parting of the Red Sea, the manna, the fire, the cloud, the water, the quail, all of that. They saw all of that. Two went to the promised land. 
And so it's important to understand that miracles will not move the rebellious heart. Because if a, if a rebellious person sees a miracle, they'll explain it away. They'll find a way to not believe it. Verse 33, therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. So I believe this really has to do with the refusal to go into the promised land. You know, they sent 12 spies into the land. Two, Joshua and Caleb said, let's do it. The, the, the other 10 said, we can't do it. The people sided with the 10 naysayers. So they weren't allowed to go into the promised land. They got to wander around for 40 years. And, and so what we have in verse 33, though, before we just kind of skip over it, is the high price of unbelief. That, that God says, it says in, in God's word in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not necessarily that we will, but that we should. That God has provided for us this life, that he wants us to walk out these good works that he has prepared for us, but through unbelief and disobedience, we may not walk in all those works. And so we see that here in verse 33. God wanted to bring them all into the promised land, but they refused. And so that word futility, it means vanity. It means vanity. It means emptiness, meaninglessness. And then it says he consumed their years in fear. That means dismay or ruin. There's no way around this. A life of unbelief is an utterly wasted life. An, a life of unbelief is an utterly wasted life. Now, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you don't have a wasted life. Though, you be, though at times you may look at it and say, well, I don't know, and it's not seemed that great. No, no, no. Your life has value, okay, because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But it's more than simply going to heaven. It's actually you get to live a life where you participate in God's purpose and plan. You actually participate in, in what he's set up for you, that you can manage, you can steward these opportunities, these people in your life for his glory, it's exciting. It's a wonderful thing. And so we want to remind ourselves, though, that with the day is coming, we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus at the Bema seat, right, to answer for how we've lived our lives as believers, and that there's going to be an accounting for our stewardship. And so we can look at that merely as fearful and worried and that kind of stuff, or we can say, there's an opportunity. No matter what I do, there's coming the performance review, so why don't I prepare for that? Why don't I prepare for that day? Why don't I live a life that's pleasing to God, that's a benefit to others, so that, that I can do things in the power of the Spirit that he's called me to do? I wonder, before we kind of close our time, I do want to remind you kind of along this theme of Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Because I think Colossians 1, 16 helps put things in perspective. We're told this, that about Jesus, all things were created through him and for him. Okay, if everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus, then if you and I live a life as much as possible about Jesus Christ, we're living the life that we're called to live. We're living the life that, that is going to the, be the most meaningful, the most helpful, the best life possible. So we'll stop here for today, and Lord willing, we'll pick up in verse 34 next week. But as we close, I, I just want to encourage all of us, myself included, hey, let's give ear to the instruction of the Bible. Let, let's listen to what it has to say. Let's, let's seek to, to live it out as, as direction, as instruction, not merely information. And let's not limit ourselves to the New Testament. I love the New Testament. I think it's incredibly powerful. I love it. My favorite place to go is the Gospel of John. 
and just sit there reading about the Lord Jesus. But let's understand all of the scriptures. Let's seek to read and understand all of God's word because it, all of it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that we might be those men and women that God has called us to be.